Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. I'm excited to be joined today by Deborah Enix Ross, president of the American Bar Association. In addition to her service at the ABA, Deborah is a senior advisor to the International Dispute Resolution Group of Debevoise and Plimpton. Previously, she served as senior legal officer with the World Intellectual Property Organization Arbitration and Mediation Center in Geneva, Switzerland. Deborah served as chair of the ABA's policymaking House of Delegates and as chair of the ABA Center for Human Rights. As chair of the ABA International Law Section, she co-founded the Women's Interest Network and worked with the International Bar Association to create its Women's Interest Group. Notably, and particularly pertinent for today's conversation, Deborah started her career as a legal aid lawyer. Deborah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ron, for the invitation. I am delighted to be with you. So, question I always like to ask uh, other lawyers is, why did you become a lawyer? And uh, how did that all start? So I think for me, the journey began when I was in sixth grade on a sixth grade field trip. And if you can think back to when you were in middle school, of course, I grew up in New York City, so we we call that elementary school. But how excited you were to go on a field trip to get out of the classroom. And our field trip was to the courts. And in New York City, we went to the Supreme Court, which is the lowest level court, uh, trial court in New York, notwithstanding the name. And I saw a man sitting on high in a black robe who seemed to know everything and was wise and kind and treated people with such dignity. And I said to my teacher, who is that? And my teacher said, that's a judge. And I said, what do you have to do to be a judge? The teacher said, you need to go to law school. So I think the idea of law was implanted in that sixth grade field trip because I was always kind of the negotiator, mediator, peacemaker in my family. And I thought, I want to be a judge. Uh, And so I think that's where it really began. Oh, that's great. Now, Your first job out of law school, and I mentioned this a moment ago, was working for a legal aid provider in Manhattan. What a great way to start a career. And anybody out there listening, follow uh, Deborah's lead. But Deborah, tell me about that experience and how that experience has affected the rest of your career. So, Ron, you're absolutely right. It was a great way to begin the career. It was challenging work. It was rewarding work. And it, for me, harkened back to why did I become a lawyer? Because I wanted to help people. And there is nothing more satisfying than being able to keep someone in their home, to be able to keep someone safe, 
from domestic violence. So it was really rewarding work. And I will tell you, as a young lawyer, you really get challenged and you, you, you get a caseload and you go to work. And you are not someone's second chair. You are everything. You manage your cases. I learned how to manage cases. I learned how to handle clients. I learned how to handle fellow counsel. All of that beginning as a legal services lawyer. So I would echo what you've said. Anyone out there who's even thinking about it, it is great experience. Do you have a a particular case or client that is memorable that comes to mind more frequently than some of the other cases or clients? Yes, and I think about it today, especially in our current climate. One of my favorite cases was for a man who had come to the country from Mexico and who paid taxes and had a social security card, probably had not, uh, he was using someone else's social security card, but had a family, paid taxes, and was scheduled to be deported. And really had been in New York for more than 30 years. And it just seems so unfair to me that someone who had had his family and had really contributed to society was facing deportation. And so we were able to work with him and to prove there was an amnesty program at the time, and we were able to document his life's work and payment of his taxes and and the support that he had in the community. And the day that he was able to get that green card, he cried and I cried and his family cried. And then they made me the best Mexican meal that I've ever had, frankly. Uh, but it was really a celebration. And and again, the reason why you go, for me, why I went to law school and, 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 and really wanting to have an impact, not just on him, but his family and his community. We talk in private practice about bet the company cases. That was a bet the company case. And so many of the cases handled by legal aid lawyers are, in effect, bet the company cases. Yes, they are. Now, you haven't forgotten those experiences. They haven't, you may have left legal aid as a full-time uh, vocation, but you haven't forgotten those experiences. And it seems to me in the way you've conducted your year as ABA president, uh, they've been particularly telling. Uh, you have visited about a dozen legal aid offices across the country over the past uh, eight or nine months. And I know from your schedule to devote a part of a day to something is a big deal because your days are packed. So why have you spent so much time visiting legal aid offices and, and what have you seen and heard? Yes, I thought it was important to carry the message to the lawyers and the staff in those offices that the ABA and the legal profession and the lawyers that are members of the ABA, that we appreciate the work that they do. We know that they stand right at the forefront of providing justice. And without them, you know, literally our system would collapse. So to be able to go to them in person to say, first of all, thank you for what you're doing, to then be as supportive as we can. I mean, we know that the ABA has long lobbied for legal services funding, but to be able to 
bring that message to them, to be able to listen to them and to hear some of the concerns that they have and some of the challenges that they face, and then to try and come back to the ABA and see if we can provide solutions. So for example, one of the challenges that they talk about is attracting young lawyers to become legal aid lawyers. And that is why our public service loan forgiveness advocacy is really important, so that those lawyers that work for 10 years in public service jobs can then get their loans forgiven. And I did meet a number of people who had their loans forgiven, and they talked about what a relief that is and how they can now stay in the jobs that they love, but still be able to now think about buying homes and other kinds of things because they don't have this debt. So first to listen, to say thank you, uh, and then to figure out what other kinds of ways we can can provide assistance to them. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I'd, I'd like to first start on what has really been uh, another focus of your ABA presidency, and that has been your Cornerstones of Democracy project. And I know even before you became ABA president, you were talking about that. And can you tell us what is it and why are you focusing so much of your time and trying to generate so much attention on the cornerstones of our democracy. Thank you for this. Uh, it really is for me a passion. So I do call it cornerstones of democracy. It's the three C's, civics, civility, and collaboration. And it was really important to me as I was thinking about what to do with this tremendous platform in honor of being ABA president And what I realized is that my non-lawyer friends were asking me questions about the law and about our legal system and processes, and it boiled down to rule of law questions. But it also boiled down to not understanding the three branches of the federal government and what it's meant to do and what they're not meant to do. And That's not surprising because the the newest ABA civics literacy survey just came out this month or last month, end of last month, and 70% of the people polled said that they thought the general public is not very well informed on how the government works. And if you're not informed on how the government works, then you don't know how to engage So civics education and civic engagement are important. And for us as lawyers, this survey also found that 59% knew that John Roberts is the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, but 19% thought it was Clarence Thomas. So, you know, civic literacy, civic engagement are really important for us to really protect these cornerstones of our democracy. And civility is extremely important because we've gotten to a point where we don't know how to be able to express ourselves and do it in a way that is positive and productive and doesn't devolve into name-calling and chaos and some of the negativity that we've seen. And the last C, collaboration, means that we need to do this work, certainly as lawyers leading the way, but we need to involve many stakeholders, including faith leaders and business leaders and journalists 
educators, all of us working together, all of us collaborating to protect these cornerstones of democracy. Let me just focus on on one of the cornerstones, civility, and, and just uh, dig a l- little deeper. You've had a distinguished career in dispute resolution and uh, arbitration and mediation. So you've you haven't donned the the black robes of a uh, public judge, but uh, certainly as a a private judge uh, and and promoting dispute resolution. You know, I think a lot of newer lawyers sometimes are under the impression, perhaps from talking to their clients or perhaps based on what they think will impress their clients, that the best lawyer is the lawyer who speaks most loudly or yells most loudly. So what's your impression of the state of civility in the law profession and uh, particularly, well, both among litigators and dealmakers who are trying to uh, work out transactions? Yeah, it's no surprise that we're seeing some of that incivility reflected in the legal profession. But the one thing that we have above all else is that we do have codes of conduct that dictate how we are meant to treat one another. And if we go too far, there are consequences for that those actions. Now, before you go too far, there's a wide gap in, in terms of what that behavior can look like. It reminds me when I first began in international arbitration, I would inevitably get calls as I started as the U.S. representative for the ICC Court of Arbitration. And I would inevitably get calls from litigators who said, I didn't put this arbitration clause in the contract. If it were up to me, it wouldn't be there. It was almost like real lawyers don't arbitrate, they litigate. You know, it was that kind of attitude. But we have seen a shift there. And I think we do our clients a disservice when we don't consider all of our options to resolve their disputes. Because at the end, that's really what we're here to do. We are here to be of service to our clients, to resolve their disputes, and to help them in commercial sense to keep those business relationships if possible and to conduct their business. Uh, And so it might feel good in the moment to pound the table or to flex your muscles. But in the end, are you serving your client? And are you serving the profession? Because we are a part of a profession. And it is a very, dare I say, a noble profession. And we need to remember that and conduct ourselves always giving the profession the kind of spotlight that we would want to see so that we can be held in the esteem that most people still hold lawyers in very high esteem. You know, we, there's lots of lawyer jokes and we get that. You know, lawyers are, people love to hate us until they need us, but we really do stand in the gap of justice. We are the ones who promote the rule of law and we can only do that if we are also conducting ourselves in a manner that is befitting the way that we're held in esteem in, in our communities. Thanks. Your, your remarks remind me of uh, a question and answer that uh, a senior partner in the firm I worked for 30 years, Sidley Austin, once uh, gave. Uh, he was asked at the outset of a year uh, what was the most significant issue facing the legal industry, and his answer was, to make sure people understand that law is a profession 
first and not an industry. That is so true. <laughs> Let's go back to uh, one of my favorite topics, which is the wonderful relationship between the ABA and Legal Service Corporation and more broadly, legal aid and access to justice across America. Every spring, generally in late March or April, the ABA gathers hundreds of its members from around the country in Washington, D.C., to visit with their members of Congress. And the gathering is called ABA Day. And ABA Day 2023, which uh, occurred in late March, again made LSC funding the focal point of the meetings on Capitol Hill. So, Deborah, from your perspective, why does the ABA do it? And how did ABA Day in 2023 go? Yeah, so it's always the highlight of the ABA year. One of the highlights is this advocacy on the Hill. And we have been doing it for more than 25 years. I think during COVID, we celebrated 25 years. Look, it's important as the national voice of the legal profession that we go and we educate people in Congress on the importance of legal services funding. And it's always, we find that there's bipartisan support. We've been well received by Republicans and Democrats uh, and a couple of independents that are in, in, in Congress because they mostly understand that without equal access for all, then there is no equal justice. And what I found is when I explain the impact on their own constituents and why this is important, then people understand it. I, you know, I was just in Boston and saw a Tip O'Neill bridge and re recalled, you know, all politics is local. And he was famous for saying. So when we meet with our representatives, we try to show them the impact in their communities that we're having and how we help veterans and how we help families stay intact and how that reverberates throughout the community. It's like the, you know, me helping my, my client get his green card helps him, helps his family, helps his community. And that's what we try to explain to various people. And I was personally, I took part in a number of meetings, including with, you know, Senators Grassley and Dick Durbin and uh, Joni Ernst and with House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and my own Congressman Tom Kane for I Live in New Jersey, and I met with him. And the message does, I think, reverberate and resound to them when you are able to look them in the eye and explain the impact on their constituents and why this is so important. So that's why we do it every year, and it is one of the best things that I think we do in the ABA. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And we at LSC are so grateful for your support because I hope that I'm persuasive when I speak to members of Congress, but realistically, I know that members of Congress are going to pay far more attention to the views and experiences of their constituents. And uh, that's not something that we at LSC can replicate easily since we're, for the most part, here in D.C. and not 
from Iowa or California or Wyoming or Texas, all of the places where people come from uh, on ABA Day. I should add, even in addition to ABA Day now going back a quarter of a century, even before that, the partnership between the ABA and LSC was quite close. One of your predecessors uh, decades ago, Lewis Powell, before he became a Supreme Court justice, was eloquent in his expression of the need for uh, civil legal aid and of the bar's strong support for civil legal aid. So part of that you know, goes beyond LSC and is really about, as you've been talking about, access to justice. Can you talk about some of the other ABA access to justice initiatives? Sure. I mean, we have a number of examples. I'll just give you a couple. One is ABA Free Legal Answers, which is just an incredible program. It's like a a virtual legal clinic that is state and local bars are coordinated them through the ABA. And we've answered to date, I think, more than 280,000 questions. Uh, And so these are volunteer lawyers. The program began in 2016. And there are about 12,000 lawyers that volunteer in in 41 states. And we're working on getting those other nine. I'm not going to name them. No naming and shaming, but I'm coming for you, you nine holdouts. But it's an easy way for lawyers to sign up and provide legal services, pro bono, uh, answer questions, and really help guide clients in a way that, frankly, we wouldn't have been able to do a few years ago without this technology. So our goal is to expand it, and it would be wonderful to go to 20,000 volunteer lawyers. That, that, I think that should be a, a goal for us. Then there are the kinds of things that we do, providing standards for language access in courts. That's another one. You know, we know that uh, access to justice can be difficult for people that are not proficient in English. So the ABA has really stepped in and provided standards that courts can use to provide the kinds of language access that we know is is necessary. There are other areas that those are kind of in our on our civil side. We've looked at the Oregon Public Defender Study on the criminal side, and that was just published in January 2022. And the study found that Oregon has far too few public defender attorneys. And so helping them to figure out how they can get funding and making sure that people get access to the lawyers that they need. But I think that's the real strength of the ABA, that we can bring people from different backgrounds. Just last week, I was at the Equal Justice Conference. There were over a thousand lawyers that have come together from various areas across the country and various practices, including a lot of pro bono lawyers, some in big firms, all with the goal of providing equal justice to our citizens who can't afford legal services. So that's really an exciting aspect of what we do. We're a convener, we're a think tank, but we don't just stop at thinking, we're also action-oriented. And I think that's important. Yeah, and one one area in which you're very action-oriented and for which uh, we at LSC have great admiration and we collaborate you is in the area of disaster relief, 
the Young yes. Lawyers Division of the ABA. When disaster strikes, they are on the ground quickly helping to set up hotlines available to uh, victims of disasters to get in touch with legal resources, hopefully within the disaster area. But if a disaster has also struck the lawyers in the area, bringing in lawyers from other jurisdictions to help out. And uh, that has really been a practical action that the ABA and the Young Lawyers Division has uh, made a, a material difference in the lives of thousands of people. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. We're we're particularly proud of our Young Lawyers Division and the work that they do there. They're just really uh, enthusiastic and they step up all the time. So Deborah, as you know, notwithstanding the work we do, notwithstanding the work you and the ABA do, We've still got a lot of work to do. Uh, the LSC Justice Gap report released last year found that 92% of the civil legal problems faced by low-income Americans were addressed with no or inadequate legal assistance. You know, taking a step back from where we are today, what are your views about improving access to justice in the future? Well, you know, I, I look at it this way. There are certainly challenges, but I've always been a glass half full kind of girl. So I do think that where there are challenges, there are opportunities. Uh, And what we really need to do is continue, obviously, to push for the kind of funding that we would love to see for LSE, but we can also do the things within the bar associations to make it easy for lawyers to step up and do pro bono work to help fill that gap as well. And we're making, it's, it's some progress, it's really slow. It can be frustrating at times, but I do think that we've got to maintain our focus, maintain our advocacy, and then literally go out and recruit others to join us in this work because it's really important. And look, even from a selfish perspective, if you're a lawyer who didn't start your career the way I did in legal services, and maybe you are in big law, but it, you know, it goes back to the cornerstones of democracy. If we don't have citizens who believe that they can have access to justice, that there is equal opportunity, those desires don't go away. They get funneled into ways that are perhaps not as constructive as we would like. So even if you say, you know, what's in it for me, what's in it for you is literally the preservation of our society and our democracy. So making sure that you are involved in whatever ways that you can. No one is asking everyone to take on major cases, but certainly there are things that all of us can do to help chip away at that that gap. And while we're chipping away at that gap, you're going to be doing things like uh, helping the client you talked about before and, you know, literally saving a life or helping somebody win their bet the company case. So it will not always move the needle in the aggregate, but it will more than move the needle for an individual or their family. Deborah, we began the conversation with your recollecting your field trip in elementary school that piqued your interest in being a lawyer. What do you say to folks today who are considering law school or who are just entering 
the legal profession and ask you for advice, what do you tell them? Well, I'm glad you asked me that because in addition to the legal services office is one of the other things that I make it a point to do is to visit law schools and in particular to visit the six HBCU, that is historically black colleges and universities that have law schools. And those have been the best conversations that I have had because I will say to law students, you can ask me anything and they ask me everything. So what I say to those law students, as well as when I visited Spelman College for the pre-law society, I tell people being a lawyer is a calling. It is a profession. It is one of the most rewarding careers that you can have. I've been at it for 40 years, and I could not have imagined all of the opportunities that I've had because I am a lawyer. You are needed in society. You are needed, your energy, your talent, your enthusiasm, and there is a place for you in the law. And as I tell students all the time, law touches every aspect of what we do. And we need smart minds, dedicated lawyers to come join us in the profession, to join us in this work, to make us a more just society. And we cannot do that without the diversity of thought and the diversity of talent that I see in these young lawyers. So I'm really optimistic when I see them. They are smarter. They are more focused and certainly more dedicated than even I was when I was their age. So I'm very excited about the future with them. Well, that's a very high bar. Uh, Deborah <laughs> Enix Ross, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Talk Justice. And more importantly, thank you for your distinguished service to the profession and to America. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to spend some time with you. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.